this week on the Afrobeats podcast. Early on, starting to interview farmers, the first thing they told me, and I had to get an almanac and <laughs> figure this out, they planted by the signs, right? Have you heard that? Planting by the signs. So depending if it's a half moon, a full moon, depending on the moon, okay, uh, there was a best time to plant your potatoes. So, wow. so they were working with nature, with gravity. So they already were leveraging what was out there. All right, that number one, right? <laughs> um, a big thing with farmers were was composting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll see even on some of these very old plantations in Virginia, I'm, I'm forgetting the most, Kingsbury, I think, plantation, they found in these pits. So the people had dug a pit and were putting their compost, but they were using those on the crop. So they were regenerating. They were taking things that were from the farm and regenerating them, letting them decompose. What's up, y'all? It's your boy Chris from Afrobeats back at it again, and you're listening to the Afrobeats podcast, the podcast where we interview dope guests of the African diaspora to share their perspective on soul and culture through the lens of food and plants. Super excited for today's podcast in the building. We have Dr. Gail Myers, a cultural anthropologist who's you know earned her doctorate in anthropology from Ohio State University. She's also a co-founder of Farms That Grow, which is dedicated to working with black farmers and underserved sustainable farmers around the country. Also working on this amazing project that I'm super impressed about called Rhythms of the Land. It's a multimedia documentary that really honors the history of the black U.S. farmers, sharecroppers, gardeners, and just spotlights, you know, this history that is so important and key to the survival of the future black farmer. I mean, we as a people need to do a better job of continuing to document our history and to, to pass it along to the next generation. So we learn from the mistakes, we learn from the triumphs, we learn from the tribulations and continue to grow as a people. So I'm super excited about this one. I'm excited about the work. And, you know, Dr. Gale is just straight up spitting some gems in this podcast. Listen up because you're definitely going to catch something that is just going to blow your mind. So without further ado, Dr. Gale Myers, let's get into it. What's up, y'all? It's your boy. Watch this. You're listening to the Afrobeats Podcast, garden table content inspired by culture and soul. I started this journey at the Ohio State University in 1997 after first meeting with my uh, advisor, you know, all students, all grad students, doctoral students have an advisor. So my advisor was also a cultural anthropologist and he had done work with Japanese rice farmers. So we were talking about farming and the topic of black farmers came up. Mm-hmm. And at that time, you know, there was like, if you could think of a cartoon, you think big question mark, I'd like, I don't know. Um, so I went to the library right away after I left his office and did a lit review. And that was the beginning of the Pickford versus Glickman uh, class action suit, mm-hmm. where uh, a class action suit uh, uh, presented to uh, the Department of Justice uh, against the United States Department of Agriculture for discrimination. Mm-hmm. And um, 
so I was curious. I thought, wow, what's going on? Curiosity uh, at, took over um, initially just curious about what the politics of the situation was. And then I had to sort of step back and said, okay, that's great, but I'm an anthropologist. Um, and I look at, uh, you know, from the discipline's perspective, you know, adaptations, traditions. So then I, I started wanting to interview black farmers, find out, huh, what are their traditions and adaptations? And then five years later, I ended up doing uh, a dissertation on just that topic. And it was time to graduate. And um, after, you know, because I began interviewing right away in 1997, I had my first interview with a black farmer. So by 2002, I was at a place where it was time to graduate, but I didn't feel that I needed to go into any other activity other than figuring out how I could assist, support, work with uh, black farmers because I'd had heard too many sad stories, had come home uh, sobbing too many times from interviews. Uh, and so my passion was at an all time like 110 percent. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I left, uh, you know, graduated and eventually went back to Atlanta, which is where I got my master's at Georgia State. <clears throat> Started talking to people then about sustainable agriculture. And because that was the approach I was using, you know, in, uh, in, in the academy, you got to use a theoretical approach for your work. I, whole bunch of stuff. I was actually using agroecology. But when I came back, um, and certainly the, the theoretical piece, that might be for another interview, because, <laughs> but anyway, uh, I came back and I started, you know, wanting to connect with people. And so the terminology I was using in 2002 was sustainable agriculture. Right. And I'm asking people, hey, you know, who are, who are the folks that are doing this? Uh, most of the time that I asked that question, it was sort of a quizzical look, same kind of question mark I probably had in 97. And I thought, wow, I, I ended up in the beginning just defining what sustainable agriculture was. Hmm. So fast forward a year and a half later, I ended up going to California for a consulting opportunity and started asking people about sustainable agriculture there. Huh. And lo and behold, I, the first person sent me five names. The second person probably sent me 10 names at a date for a conference. And so it was all over. I thought, oh my goodness, this is where I should be. Ended up moving to California um, and started talking to black farmers in California. And lo and behold, I heard some of the same depressing stories uh, about what they were not getting from folks, agencies that were um, should have been helping them. So again, I was really frustrated by what's going on with black farmers. Here we are, you know, fast forward six, seven years from graduating and um, <clears throat> me for my first interview with a black farmer. And I remember I had uh, a very good friendship with a farmer in Ohio named Gordon Reed and we maintained a connection. So I remember the day I called Gordon, I said, Gordon, I'm frustrated. I just talked to a few black farmers here and they are dealing with the exact same issues. I said, well, he said, what are we gonna do? And I remember that when I was getting ready to graduate and my colleagues, my classmates were asking me what I'm gonna do. I said, I don't know, but I got farms to grow. Just that just rolled off my tongue. And so fast forward several years later, started an organization. I remembered that idea. So we started Farms to Grow in 2004 as an effort just to stand in the gap 
We didn't know what we were going to do, but we knew that something needed to be done. So uh, that was 16, 17 years ago. Um, and the organization has been, uh, has, has, has had a great impact, especially in California, with regard to connecting farmers to consumers. We've worked in several schools in San Francisco and uh, Oakland uh, with, uh, in San Francisco, opening gardens. We have a Gardens to Grow program, implementing a cooking program. Uh, we have a farmer development program. Where we work directly with writing grants and getting opportunities for farmers. Uh, we have a George Washington Carver called, it's called a circling back. And it's basically a community panel discussion. Mm -hmm. We bring in experts and we talk about the sustainability uh, and the aspects of George Washington Carver's legacy that are relevant today. Um, and I've been working on this documentary called Rhythms of the Land. At, well, at the time that I was first considering it, I had my first interview in 97. And I remember I'm in the field with my pad as we are as anthropologists. And in my mind, I saw this farmer at his farm and how he just went about his business of stewarding the land more or less. I said, the world needs to see this. So, you know, you, know, you get a degree, you move forward. In 2012, um, I went into the field because as I had always done with my farmers, I continued to maintain a contact with them. And so over the years, uh, checking on folks and folks checking on me, I would get calls about uh, farmer so-and-so has passed away and uh, so-and-so has passed away. And, and this, I'm still uh, visualizing these stories, these narratives of black farmers that I'm seeing as I'm out there in the field with them. And so after just being very frustrated uh, after applying for several grants, um, I got in my car, it took six weeks, a camera, had a few farmers that, uh, lined up. And eventually I ended up going into 10 Southern states, interviewing uh, over 25 African-American farmers, former sharecroppers, gardeners, I have a, a wonderful uh, basket weaver, uh, Miss Jerry Taylor. And, um, and these are stories, I, I, I'm gonna show this visual again. This is my Aunt Rose. At this time, I think she was 100, I'm sorry, she was 98 or 99. Mm -hmm. She actually lived to be 104. Um, so I, you know, the story, not only was it, uh, you know, in honor of black farmers, but I began to find out so many aspects of my own family's farming mm -hmm. history, talking to Aunt Rose. So it, it uh, took me down a whole nother uh, fact finding, if you will, mission. And so, so many things unfolded as, as a result of this adventure. But these are stories that, that had to be told, you know, uh, as you know, you know, talking to all the black farmers and you can see from all the statistics around, you know, how, of course, during the enslavement, black farmers, black folk didn't have, you know, there were a few, I will say that uh, in free states, black <laughs> folks did have a little bit of land, mm -hmm. one or 2%. But within the South and after the enslavement period, we went from an enslaved people being property <laughs> to figuring out how to gain property and raise a family and a community. So from you know, 1863 to 1910, 19, 1920, most uh, the statistics uh, indicate that there were over 920,000 black farmers farming on uh, about over 15 million acres of land, close to 15 million acres of land. 
Right now we're looking at 44,000 farming, not owning the land, that number is, is less. Uh, farming probably about three to four million acres. So you say they were owning the land, not just farming. The right, land. right. These were the, the, well, I will say that more than about 60% of the encompassed in that 920,000 were tenant farmers and sharecroppers with hopes of owning the land, but they were farming the land for someone who owned the land, right. for someone who reaped the benefits mm -hmm. of their farming the land. So they were on the land. Uh, but there were a significant amount, 30, 35, 34% of those black farmers that were purchasing their land. Okay. I mean, so many stories uh, that you, you won't see in any kind of a encyclopedia or a book, but that I've heard on the uh, you know, in the field and talking to farmers, uh, even before uh, the end of the Civil War, Black men were purchasing land, going out, chopping trees and making, um, you know, railroad ties, selling, owning land. So, you know, you have today, you know, especially in South Carolina and, and mostly places in the South, uh, six generation farm families, farm families that have been on that land around the time of the Civil War or, or, or a little bit before. So these are folks that, yeah, they were working hard. They were purchasing that land. They were working together uh, cooperatively, family members, so that they could save money. And then, then you know, a brother or an uncle or a sister and a husband could purchase land contiguous to the family land. But they were growing communities. I mean, you know about, you know, uh, there are over, an easy Google search will tell you that there, are over 100, there were over 100 I want to say 23 exclusive African-American farming communities like Tulsa, like Nicodemus, Kansas, like Allensworth, California, where we had to develop our own communities in order for us to survive. There was so much violence and terrorism that if we dared and, you know, which, you know, which really incited the, the great migration, uh, in many ways, these black uh, families had land, but they were being lynched. They were being intimidated. You can't grow food and under those conditions, you can't. You know, yeah. um, so there was just a lot of of demise around, you know, family and community. And it wasn't a pleasant, very negative. Let's just say the environment, the whole ecosystem for black farmers and black families in the South trying to own land was very negative. So, you know, these stories are part of that, that history, mm -hmm. are part of that reality. And they have been you know, over time dismissed and, you know, minimized, you know, well, we don't care about them, but it's time and it's actually past time to tell the stories of black farmers. And so this Rhythms of the Land story uh, is, is a Valentine to generations of black farmers. And I, and, you know, so the subline is a love story of land and family. And just like my very first interview with Dr. Um, with Mr. William Chambers, he, he feels like a doctor to me. He was 92, I think, when I first met him. Um, he was such a loving man. He, I, I mean, the stories he talks about around how he had to rebuild his family's home uh, twice with the help of the, the Catholic uh, society, because anytime they left for church or went, it was burned down, you know, for a time he was uh, in his uh, brother-in-laws, they would have to uh, build, uh, uh, you know, an area right in front of the house 
where they would have to lay at night with shotguns mm. because people would come by and try to shoot and burn. And, and But this man had such love is that we, when he found out that there was a white woman that was abandoned by her family in a trailer, he instructed his children to go get her. He said, no, you go get her and you bring her here. We're going to take care of her. And so then the family finds out then that, you know, this black family has embraced their, their mother. But this is a guy who has been, you know, has raised two families. Actually, it's a very interesting story. Uh, this, when I met him, he was on his second wife, second family. Um, and many of his children from the first uh, family, had he had outlived most of his children. They were in their 60s and 70s, but he went on to raise a whole nother family. Um, but he had so much love. He had so much, um, you know, I, I was fascinated. What I, you know, I went into the home. Uh, it, I was teaching a course at the time at Denison University. Um, uh, I was invited to actually teach my dissertation work and I seized the moment. So the, uh, the course was uh, Sustainable Communities, U.S. Uh, Black Farmers in the U.S. And so the, I took my students on overnight to his farm. And so we stayed overnight and he took us on a tour. <clears throat> and so when you, you know, when you go into his house, uh, when I first went to visit, um, you see this, all these beautiful drapes. And I thought, wow, custom drapes. And I'm assuming that his wife did the drapes. And I see right. a sewing machine table. So I don't say anything of it, you know, assumptions. So when we bring the students and um, we do a tour eventually, and he takes us, he had 80 acres in um, northern, uh, southern Ohio, north, uh, southern um, Kentucky, northern Ohio. And uh, I'm sorry, no, southern Ohio, northern Kentucky, right on about 20 miles over the Kentucky border. And so we see these abandoned sewing machines and, I, and he was on the tour and I asked him, I was like, well, well why are you keeping these sewing machines? He said, well, I, always, I might need parts, you know, cause I, I do a lot of sewing. And I said, so you were the, you do the sewing? He says, yeah, I do all the sewing. So he's making the drapes, the tablecloths. This just very, just loving, uh, strong, um, yet, you know, willing to be vulnerable man. Uh, really just informed my whole world around what someone that's connected to the land could be, you know, the, the, the sort of um, connection to land, community, um, and not necessarily sort of the stereotypical roles. Right. Um, but he was such a gentleman. He saved seeds. But these are stories um, that need to be told. And so, you know, for me, these stories are honoring those farmers that were on the land from very early. My goal initially was to find, uh, to interview the eldest farmers because those were the ones that were passing on. The knowledge. And so, yeah. And so that's what I, um, about a third of the farmers uh, as a part of this documentary are in their hundreds. Ms. Uh, um, Isaphine Thomas, is 112, I think, or 100 and, 109. She's 109 at the time of the interview. Just a beautiful woman um, and folks that have grown up on their own land. Most of these people that I've interviewed um, actually are own land. Okay. They have family land or purchased, sold land or purchased new land. But these are landowners um, 
my aunt Rose lived in the same house for, I guess, maybe 60 years. She had a garden, a massive garden. She had chickens. And when guests would come, she would go out there and harvest a, a chicken um, and, and get some uh, vegetables. And it was the best, most memorable tasting food you, you'd ever want to taste. So, yeah. Um, and I think that this labor of love is, um, we all need this. You know, I, as a cultural anthropologist, I know that it's important to preserve stories and the, the, the sort of the group that I have just come to, you know, focus my work on are African-American black, black farmers. Um, but this is, this is not just a black farmer's story, right? This is a world story. This is a story of a people that have lived 245 years putting their labor in the most extractive extremes and not getting anything back. Uh, coming out though, almost you wanna say landing on, on our feet, uh, developing communities. And so this is a story of overwhelming odds. This is a survival story, but it's also a love story. And so this is the world story. This is America's story, but it is, a, it is about how black farmers have been able to uh, be in community, uh, honor it, uh, very uh, spiritual, uh, very much connected to God, very centered in their role in, 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 the, in the bigger world. Uh, but, but knowing, and, and, you know, from what I've understood from them, they know the real, the essence of the relationship is, is caring, is a love. And that, I, I, earlier I said stewardship, you know, a lot of folks take to farming as sort of an exploitive. We got to produce. We got to get right, out of right, it. Right. From what I've heard from these farmers, they're just stewards. They're mm -hmm. taking care of it for their turn. They're passing the baton on with all the knowledge that they have been taught to take care of it, to replenish it, to regenerate it. And then they're passing it on. But in the meantime, they certainly have to make a living. Sure. They certainly have to feed community good food. Uh, and certainly have to be self-sufficient. You know, one of the big important things about having land is that you have sovereignty. Mm -hmm. You know, you can tell somebody to get off your land. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, no trespassing, a big shotgun. <laughs> exactly. Uh, land is wealth. It's something, certainly something you can pass on mm -hmm. to generations. Um you know, and you know, uh, reconstruction. You had to have it in order to vote. Uh, it 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 gives you certain privileges. So we, you know, and I think black farmers knew that and understood that more than anything. But they also knew that they had um, to take care of the land. They they had a reverence for all of the ways in which you know, sort of the social, political, economic pieces of it. They also loved that land. They went to pray in the woods. They went to hunt. There was opportunistic foraging, right? When someone got sick, they would always call grandma or big ma, uh, what herbs do I need? And they would try to explain where it is and you know, what color and what time of the year you can harvest it. And you know, um, th th that's a part of culture, that, that community that is um, enacted on land, right? There's certain aspects of our material culture, our, um, physical culture that we can't continue to maintain and sustain unless we're on land, right? I can't, you know, go um, 
foraging uh, in the forest uh, with my aunties if we don't have a forest. Right. Or if we don't have land, you know, we may have a key <laughs> to a place to live, uh, but that may just be all it is, you know. And so I think uh, I'll stop. I'll stop. Let me. Uh, oh, you're, you're fine. I was, I was just in awe and everything. I mean, you ran through probably four or five of the questions I was going to ask. Oh, okay. So okay. You answered a lot of my questions just in that introduction. Thank you so much for doing that. Um, my question is like, it sounds like these these farmers, they're living for a long time. They're really getting purpose from the land. Do you think there's a vitality with working the land and being stewards within the land? Because I just noticed just the trends you're talking about. I mean, 109, you know, uh, these they're, they're getting up there in these ages. And, and they seem, even though they, yes, deserve to have that sovereignty and be paid for what they do, they, they get a lot out of it. What do you what do you think about that? Just hearing those different stories. That's a great point. I think there is a certain vitality that comes with it. It's a certain um, uh, renewable renewal kind of an energy every spring or every fall or every time it's a harvest or um, you're putting a seed in the ground and you're wishing, uh, you know, you're watching your bees and, and you know, you're uh, taking care of your, your orchard and, and, um, and there's a certain belief that this is going to be all right, I think. You know, especially if you are a low input farmer, these are farmers like black farmers in, in general, didn't get a lot of support to buy expensive fertilizers or a lot of huge equipment or, you know, money to make a whole bunch of upgrades. So, you know, you go into it, you know, sometimes when I'm, I'm in the field, I can pass in a country and I know a black farm because they've got the wooden fences, the same wooden fences that great uncle had, but they built them so well, you know, they may have had to replace a board. Uh, and then you go a little bit further and you see the metal fences. I said, well, that's a white farmer because they've had money, right. um, you know, and resources uh, to do the upgrades. But, but, but the low input farmers, because they've got chickens and it's sort of a closed system where most of what is used is going back. It's, uh, all the you know natural resources are are considered; they're not overused. More sustainable. I yes, guess. very much sustainable, and even and even regenerative. Right. Because you know how to take something that hasn't grown and been as productive, and make it grow. Um, but those kinds of relationships, I think, give you vitality. They right. give you a purpose, right? You know. Um, they give you a reason to wake up at four and five a.m. in the morning, you know, to see what your corn looking like. What my first harvest of tomatoes? I remember when I did my first garden, maybe eight nine years ago, um, and I, you know, dug out the, the lawn uh, and put in some new soil and planted crops mostly from seeds from starters. So we started uh, the starters were started in a separate container and mm -hmm. seeds and transplanted. Um, and I, I, you know, and you eat from your garden, I, I, you know, it's just, it's a feeling that I can't really explain. Maybe I should write about it one day, but it's very exhilarating. It's very, um, powerful at the same time. You know, you're, you're like, wow, I grew this, you know, and you brag, you share, um, but you're fortified from the love of a relationship that you have a connection with the land. Right. And I think there's something that we don't say enough about that connection, that spiritual relationship. Um, I mean, black folks in general, when you know, we came over, we're, we're forced to come over and work 
Uh, we brought seeds over and we had food and things that, that we needed to survive. We, right. you know, we knew some of the things that we would need and, and eventually cultivated them. Um, what were some those, of those, uh -huh. what were some of those sustainable practices that have been used from generation to generation that you may have seen other places? Because sustainability—that's such a like a buzzword today, right? Right. Doing right. That. It seems like we've as wow. a doing this for yeah. a long time, you know. So, what are some of those specific practices you are seeing in those, you know, farms? Well, early on, starting to interview farmers, the first thing they told me, and I had to get an almanac, <laughs> figure this out. They plant it by the signs, right? Have you heard that? Planting <laughs> by the signs. So depending if it's a half moon or full moon, depending on the moon, okay. uh, there was a best time to plant your potatoes. So, wow. so they were working with nature, with gravity. So they already were leveraging what was out there. All right. That number one, right? <laughs> um, a big thing with farmers were, was composting. Mm -hmm. uh, you'll see even on some of these very old plantations in Virginia, I'm, I'm forgetting the most, but Kingsbury, I think, plantation, they found in these pits. So the people had dug a pit and were putting their compost, but they were using those on the crop. So they were regenerating. They were taking things that were from the farm and regenerating them, letting them decompose and putting them back on the farm, right? Um, the no plowing, you know, uh, no tilling. Um, there were some practices that, you know, became, you know, not as productive, but, you know, farmers had gotten accustomed to them, concustomed to them, uh, but there was a certain ways in which farmers planted, they're intercropped. Um, so many wonderful stories. I'm, you know, talking to farmers that have planted a row of uh, uh, corn and a row of pumpkins or in the field in Alabama and Mississippi where I've talked to farmers that were, many of them were on um, share crop land and, you know, you don't get a lot of money. So the, the, the owner of the land just wants you to grow and give them uh, what you've grown. They don't want you to grow too extra. These folks were growing in between rows of cotton watermelons, right? Yeah. They were surviving. People were making a living, but they were also figuring out that there's something within the pumpkin. And I asked them this, this particular question that replenishes the corn. So they were intercropping. They knew which plants helped regenerate, you know, black uh, farmers, even from an African tradition, we had our traditional three sisters, uh, with the yams uh, and the beans and the melons. Um, and so one would take the nitrogen out, uh, one would put it in, mm -hmm. and then you could use the trees to climb. Uh, yeah, to climb. So um, folks just knew how to, and, and, and let me just say that sustainable agriculture thing. You know, I, I asked farmers about that. I said, you know, you all do sustainable agriculture. And they were like, what? What is that? <laughs> what do you mean? What is that? And they would say, we just do natural farming. Mm. So these terms, these words, these are Western words. These are, you know, this permaculture, uh, all of this is our stuff. And even, I, you know, I practice. And as I was looking, you know, you know, at the PhD level, you got to get a theory. None of that, I had to throw everything out. I was like, no, this doesn't talk about power. This doesn't talk about land. This doesn't talk about 
So agroecology, you know, combined with sustainable agriculture, um, I use some deep ecology, but a little bit of that. Um, and as I, even with agroecology, it's a wonderful term, but when you look at what black farmers have done, we've always thought about community. What I like about agroecology is that it can include aspects of power and people. Most right. time agriculture and these principles leave people out. How are you gonna do that? Um, and it includes a natural environment in ways that you can leverage, um, you know, natural sustainable aspects of the land. Agroforestry, agroecology. Um, but we've been doing that before that term came about because we're always looking at taking care of community. We're always looking uh, collaboratively and cooperatively together. We're always looking at how to make sure we ro rotate crops, how to make sure we take care of the water, the fish, mm -hmm. all those things that are encompassed in the principles of that. Uh, you can find a history of that in the practices of black farmers and the principles and things that are priorities uh, for us to being on the land. Cause they understood keenly. And certainly this is a carryover from our traditional um, African uh, practices and beliefs that we, we owed a lot to nature. We wow. owed to respect it. We got messages. We, you know, we knew, um, you know, and you see this in the Geechee Gullah Geechee community today is if you're fishing in an area and you see there's the diminishment of the fish, you stop doing that. Right. You don't fish and drain the fish. You know, even with, um, uh, Jerry Taylor talks about this in our, my interview with her. She said, even the basket weavers, if in their basket, they're not going to take the last palmetto, the last bit of straw, unless there's a hurricane and it, and it fells it but they're not gonna go intentionally and take it if that's the last bit. You know, that's a people caring about more than their baskets, caring about more than their, their stomachs with their fish, you know, they're connected. And so in those instances, you see the relationship between people and their environment. Mm -hmm. You see how people help replenish uh, a fish community or uh, stop diminishing a straw community. And that palmetto helps with the species that live in the trees and all the other pieces of that particular ecosystem. So, and I, you know, I think that's, you know, I'm not saying that they read books like, oh yeah, we got to do this. It's intuitive, it's, it's passed on. Yeah. You see grandma do it and you wonder, I wonder why she picking up that straw on the ground on the, on the bed of the forest, what's she going to do with it? Right. You know what I'm saying? Um, there are just so, just so many beautiful things that I love about black folk that are uh, affiliated with the land and have that relationship. It, it really is a relationship. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's beyond uh, terminology in my mind. It's, yeah, I, I, so I'm gonna let the video speak for itself. Okay. <laughs> you know, um, so yeah, we'll, we're, we're hoping that the, I'll uh, have a wonderful production team. Uh, speaking of spirit and God, uh, seven people that have been uh, just wonderful over the last six months and helping us move this forward. We found an editing group. So we're hoping by August of um, 2021 that we'll have our first screening, if not before. I'm, I'm looking for before, but I'm going to be patient. It's been eight years now. So <laughs> I and I remember in the beginning, um, after coming out of the field, I, you know, you'll see some of the, if you can find an earlier trailer says, yeah, coming to theaters. 2013. So I had projected in 2012. <laughs> I'd have the film in 2013. 
Uh, and someone had told me that it would be uh, nine years, um, I would have said, no, you're kidding. But a lot happened between then. We started a farmer's market. Uh, we really built uh, Farms to Grow's presence with regard to uh, helping black farmers and, and various other projects that we've had. And so, yeah, we're excited. It's time. It's time for rhythms. <laughs> I like that. How, um, how do you feel about the younger generation in this, this film and this, the impact it's going to have on them? Because I'm seeing, you know, from people from my generation and younger, this resurgence of people, you know, getting that connection into the land. We, the way people's life, eyes light up, you know, when they have a new plan or something like that. I'm just seeing that. How do we bridge that gap between the older and younger generations to make sure, like you said, those things are passing down? Mm -hmm. Well, um, that's the importance of the story, mm -hmm. right? Sometimes you don't even know uh, you're jazzed about something until you see a story. We haven't, we have not seen these stories of Aunt Rose. We have not seen these stories of uh, Miss Isaphine. Uh, and so many other beautiful people that are a part of this narrative, uh, Rhythms of the Land. And that's, the, that's what we'll have. We will have not only these stories, but this will be uh, also another little footnote that folks can use when they're doing their research because they're gonna build on this. This is, you know, and I'm building on Charlene Hunter, Charlene uh, Gilbert did a documentary called Homecoming I think hers came out early 2000 or late 97. It's about her family in North Carolina. And seeing that gave me hope of doing this documentary. And I'm sure there are other filmmakers that are already you know, interviewing and doing stuff like this. So we're just gonna be building on each other's work. And either they'll you know, gravitate now, but it will be available. You know, Our hope is that we've got a few techniques we're using some animation, we're using some choreography. Um, I have a very young team <laughs> working with me that are bringing that, um, that young eye to these stories. Um, but it's such an important story. I, I, I'm, I'm all confident, I, don't ha I haven't taken a survey, I don't have any proof that it's gonna happen like this, but I have a feeling that um, we will have as many screenings at colleges and high schools uh, that we have in general auditoriums, I know. Because this is like fresh air. This is like some clean water after being thirsty. We haven't had this information. We haven't seen this landscape. We haven't seen this perspective. Um, and so many of our young people have grandparents or great grandparents in their lives uh, or had them for a short period. And part of what's missing is that we don't have our elders in our lives. Don't right. get me started on that part. But I think this can be certainly an element mm -hmm. where we can connect our young people. And this story really is about a reconnection uh, to generations, to stories. Again, as I said, from the very early farmers that, uh, from the very first Africans uh, that hit the shores of South Carolina and Brazil and other places uh, to be forced to work without pay. Uh, this story is honoring their survival against all odds. And these farmers are, are very similar. You know, I'm not saying there's a monolithic black farmer, but their stories are similar. 
-hmm. their stories of love, their stories of overcoming. Those are universal, right? right? Their stories of wanting a family, their stories of wanting to be independent and self-sufficient, to be safe. Mm -hmm. These are stories that are about black farmers, but these are these are everybody's stories. Right. Right. And so we want to be able to, you know, with regard, especially to young people, have them see something around how these people overcame these odds. Yeah. You know, and what they, you know, how they acquired it. Um, and so the story is important, but the work that we're doing with Farms to Grow was important because we had to, and so many other organizations now, uh, you know, currently are also doing incredible work. But it was important that we had to stand in the gap. Somebody had to go to the USDA. Somebody had to go to Sacramento, which is you know California's capital. Somebody had to go to Oakland City Hall Food Policy Council to say, what about the black farmer, right? What about the black farmer in the black community? And so that was where we started, uh, just being a voice. Um, I managed a farmer's market in Bayview Hunters Point, which is one of the last uh, African, which was one of the last African-American communities, very diverse. I don't know if it's predominantly African-American, but at that time in 2004, 2005, it was mostly African-American, maybe 35%. But we had a farmer's market there. And I began to interact with the children mostly that came into the market early before the farm stands were set up. And they would point to the fruit and they would say, what's that? I said, that's a pear. He said, what's that? I said, that's a peach. It broke my heart because they had never seen fresh fruit like that. And so that was the motivation to start the Gardens to Grow program in San Francisco, Baby Hunters Point where we had a garden in uh, Charles Drew, we had a garden in Hunters Point, Head Start, uh, and Whitney Young, one of the very earliest uh, African-American after-school programs. And working with youth, uh, we discovered something very interesting, like I said, needing some fresh air. These kids had been around so much concrete and people telling them this and that. When they got into the land, they were having their own relationships. I didn't have to say anything. That's the power of the land it communicated its own spiritual connection to those young people. So we started in many cases, we, it was an abandoned garden that we replenished or we created new gardens like at Whitney Young. Uh, and we would have people come out, you know, because people learned about this project and they would come out and say, we wanna see. And when they would come out and we would be working with the young kids, well, the young children in the garden, they would say, come over here and see my garden. They claimed that garden. This wasn't the school's garden or the guard coordinator's garden. This was their garden. And they, they took that garden because we pulled the weeds out. They laid the, the, the uh, string on where we're going to plant the uh, squash. And they went from no growing food to growing food. So they saw the magic of it. And it was, you know, it was apparent, you know, even more apparent for me as, a, as an anthropologist is how... Um, knowledge is transferred sometimes beyond the verbal experience. If you are given the opportunity to put your own hands in the soil, have an experience of planting a seed and see it grow, that's your relationship with that plant. That's your relationship with that environment. It's a magical, wonderful thing. And so the more opportunities I think that we give children and young people in general 
to have their own experience. It'll train, it'll tell them where to go. You know, they're very intuitive. These kids are just incredibly uh, uh, connected to land because we don't, they don't have all the filters that we have. Oh, that can't happen. Right. But they can relate. They feel it in ways that uh, adults cannot. So it's really important, I think, that we let children be exposed to the soil and, and uh, they'll go back to it. I mean, you know, it's, you know, it's undoubtable that we had a lot of shame coming out of the enslavement period and, and association with land. I can't say, I'm not going to say that I haven't heard it before, mm -hmm. uh, especially some from of the girls that we've worked with, yeah. third grade girls, not wanting to get in the sun. Um, yeah, uh, but stigma. Is it, what do you think about that? Is that starting to peel off a little bit or is that? Yes. I see. Yes. I haven't been as actively involved in that age group over the last, I guess, eight years, 10 years. Mm -hmm. But I, from what I hear and going to conferences and mostly with uh, college age children, children coming out of, uh, yeah, graduating from high school, that, yeah, they're going to want to be farmers. They're trying to find ag programs and FISC you know, and Dillard, mm -hmm. uh, which in some instances they exist, but in some instances they don't. That's new. So these, uh, many of these HBCUs, you know, Tuskegee is known for Fort Valley State, but there are a lot of other uh, colleges that haven't had a focus on ag and students want to go there and they want to study ag. Yeah. So I think there's going to be an increasing number of ag majors coming out of uh, more HBCUs because I think young people are going there. They see the value of being on the land. Huh. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things that are pushing young people, I think, back to uh, a career in food and farming that maybe 10 years ago they hadn't thought about. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you know, look at what's happening uh, around white nationalism, like young people and aren't feeling safe. Yeah. Uh, folks are going back to the land and developing. They're all all black enclaves. You know, it's almost like you know a renaissance of you know going back to building the black town. So I think there's a lot going to be going on. A lot of positive uh, outcome that's really happening. I think a lot of the was really happening politically with Black Lives Matter and mm -hmm. everything else. That synergy around that are is either pushing or pulling people back to the land. And with organizations like uh, Bugs, uh, Black Urban Gardeners, um, the National Black Food and Justice Alliance, um, even HEAL, uh, you know, Black people are, young Black people in particular, are seeing options that they were not seeing before. And then there's support. We're going back, you know, we're not waiting for the USDA. That was a challenge around why so many farmers lost their land. Right. is that they weren't able to get the kind of support the white farmers got to expand, build infrastructure. I mean, I told you about those fences, mm -hmm. you know, seeds and liners for their ponds and irrigation, things like that. Um, you know, folks are going back with a whole new attitude, uh, investment, investing, uh, leveraging cooperative capital, uh, you know, the capital of leveraging labor, you know, collectively going, laboring, uh, to this farm going and collectively, you know, that's one of the things that we do at Farms to Grow. Uh, we bring volunteers to our black farmers because they don't have a lot of labor dollars. Everything is, is going back to the paying the mortgage or getting inputs or all those things that involve the farm being able to sustain itself as an operation. 
And so they need a lot of support. They haven't been able to get that. So I think now that's a new day. Um, it's a whole new day. I, 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 it's just a wonderful time to be in this movement. Um, I'm really excited. I can't wait to share rhythms of the uh, rhythms of the land with uh, everyone here in the in the nation and the world. Uh, it's it's a wonderful story. But I but I, I know that part of what we we are proposing is that as people hear these stories and they begin to go and capture their family stories, you know, the iPhone now is a wonderful thing. You know, um, you don't even need a big camera. <laughs> you just need a iPhone, it's unbelievable. It's, they're making some good movies on iPhone. But there's a way that, you know, find the eldest person, find who's got, the, who holds the story, who holds the family's farming story. Mm-hmm. I found mine yeah. as a result of going into the field, uh, doing rhythms. I found more than I thought that my Weems family, we still have land um, in perpetuity and anybody in the Weems line can, um, it's a family cemetery. Um, I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't been in pursuit of this story. So there's some untold stories out there, you all. I'm on that. Go get your family farm story. Absolutely, I'm I'm on that journey myself. I know that my family has history of farming, and you know my aunts and see what kind of content I'm putting out there. They're like, oh, you get that from your your this this person and this person. I'm like, what? I didn't you know heard those stories, but yeah. So. There's, there's so much that we'll discover, um, you know, so much I discovered about myself when I did my first garden. Mm-hmm. Um, I started using a technique that it kind of came to me and it wasn't until I was bending over, you know, building my soil that I began to sort of build these terraces. And then one of my elder mentors came over to see I was so, so proud. And she said, well, how did you how'd you know how about to do that? I said, I don't know. She said, that's a very old technique. And I probably, I don't know if I saw my grandmother doing it when she had her garden, when I was, you know, I wasn't even paying attention, but I chalk it up to me really channeling my grandmother's spirit who comes through the sort of the, 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 that vibrant energy that the soil gives off. We're never far away from, you know, our, our ancestors, if we can really be in the places and, and be in the sort of frame of mind that, like my grandmother loved her garden. I know every time I see a rose, a rose garden, she had the most beautiful different color roses. Um, and when I see a rose, I feel like I'm with my grandmother, you know, cause she loved that. Um, before she passed away, that was one of the things when they brought her back from the hospital, um, she went straight to her roses. You know, and so, you know, there's so many relationships that we have that um, go un- unknown if we, you know, if, uh, you know, if we sort of limit ourselves to the very sort of hard urban environment, let's go back into the forest. Let's, you know, I know a lot of people are, don't like bugs and stuff, but put on some boots and go into the forest, <laughs> you know, um, it's amazing whispers of wisdom that you'll find there perhaps. Um, It's amazing during the enslavement period, that's one of the things that um, black folk did is that they went into the woods and they prayed, you know, for hours and hours and sometimes all night, (laughs) you know? 
Yeah. So there's something very special about being connected to the land and knowing its power. Because as Philip Barker says, he's one of the farmers in this film, land has so much power. And I think if we realize that, we can even get back to our own power. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what I feel. I think that, that is so um, key. And I think what's implied in your question about vibrancy. Yeah, that's probably why a rose is, uh, lives to you know be a hundred and something, eating her food, eating on the land. Uh, Miss Isaphine in the same land you know she grew up in. Um, there's something powerful about being connected to that land, right? And that vibrant experience that you're waking up every day. Um, so yeah, I think there's something to it. There's definitely something to being connected to the farm. And, and, and in the way that you understand its power. Yeah. Right? I love that. I think that's a, a beautiful note to end it on right there, Gail. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's, it's been a real pleasure. I, I know someone's going to listen to this podcast and it's like, maybe I should go outside and do something. Absolutely. That's what it's all about. And I can't wait for your, your documentary to come on. So we'll, we'll definitely let the audience know when that comes out so everybody can go and get okay. that. Well, we'll be updated at, right now. It's on uh, rhythmsoftheland.com. Mm-hmm. And so the trailer is there and we'll update uh, notices around when we'll have a screening. We'll, we'll, we're intending to do uh, screenings locally and you know, when various parts have become available. Uh-huh. And um, it's not gonna be your typical, like you go in the theater and you have some popcorn. Right, right. No. Uh, we're going to have drumming. We want folks to taste some of the food that the farmers talk about and the legacy foods. We want people to experience rhythms of the land uh, because that's how these farmers are, you know, a part of their land. They, they experience that. And so I, I think it's, it's, it's a unique experience and I want to be able to provide that with these stories. Absolutely. Where can people find you on either social media or they want to learn more? Yeah, they're, they're, um, I'm not really active on my Facebook, but um, yeah, well, we have a, uh, we have an Instagram through Rhythms of the Land and um, uh, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's it. Maybe I'll uh, get more active on my Facebook, but right now I'm, I'm actually on Facebook and, and Instagram and, well, we'll make sure to put all those links in the, sh- the show notes and get those out. Okay. So. All right. Well, thank you, Kristen. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Stay I appreciate great. the time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Just want to thank Dr. Myers for coming through and sharing her knowledge. When, when the elders speak, you just listen, man. She really did her thing there. And I, I loved the conversation that we had, but the conversation's not over. We still got more to talk about. So why are you still here? Join us over at the Facebook community group. You can go to Facebook and go to the search button, look up the Afro Beats podcast community, and you will find a group of people just like me, just like you, looking to expand on their knowledge and to grow in this community. So we want to see you over there. So what are you waiting for? Get over there. (laughs) Well, that's it for today, y'all. That's it. That's that's a wrap. So go ahead and go over to iTunes, you know, give your boy five stars, throw a little comment in there. We're trying to get better each and every week. So if you're feeling your boy, go ahead and take care of that. 
Share this podcast with your fellow foodies and gardeners, and I'll talk to y'all next week. I love y'all. I appreciate y'all. And remember, keep moving to the beat of your own drum. Talk to you later, fam. Peace.